1: Welcome to the Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna,
2: and I'm Amber. And this week, we've flashed the lobby lights to indicate that the intermission is over, and everyone has filed back into the theater for the conclusion. Everyone of- finish peeing. Of conclusion of my double feature, the 2009 science fiction epic Avatar. Anna, do you yes. know anything about Avatar?
1: There's some blue folks in there. There's some blue um, folks. There's I, the, the, no.
2: So listeners can know that the screen, the uh, script notes say Anna confirms or denies knowledge of Avatar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I can confirm knowledge of Avatar. I have not seen it, which is the real question that you're asking. Um, I have I have not seen it. I am very aware of it. Um, and <laughs> my favorite representation of that movie <laughs> <laughs> Not favorite, but I know about it because of a really great episode of the Bony Island Whitefish, which is a bonus episode of Bunta Vista, a podcast that Amber and I both enjoy. And in it, um, the hosts break down every episode of season five of the TV show Bones, which as longtime listeners might imagine, I have thoughts about uh, the series, but And season five listeners also know with deep within them that Anna has
2: watched this show.
1: Oh, I definitely did. Yeah. And then going back, I'm like, oh, (laughs) I've grown so much. (laughs) Uh, No, so season five, episode nine, The Gamer in the Grease. Ew bad title oh yeah i know which one you're talking about now yep okay I yeah so here's that. a here's a quick little little summary during the episode which is entitled the gamer in the greece emily deschanel's dr brennan and her team investigate the remains of a competitive gamer who is the only known player to have earned a perfect score on a video game called punky pong just incredibly lazy writing it's donkey kong just call it like schmonkey schmonk the case yeah. however interferes it's a with the
2: of like the king of kong document yeah
1: yeah the document yeah, yeah yeah yep so the case interferes with the plans of intern colin fisher who wins tickets to the avatar premiere online and recruits fellow jeffersonian smithsonian <laughs> workers Hodgins and sweets to take turns standing in line with him the in joke of course is that fisher is played by recurring guest star Joel David Moore who stars in the real avatar oh, so that's i mean
2: the nerd okay yeah he's the, he he's is the, a
1: character actor who plays a nerd usually
2: he he's like an a cousin greg looking guy like for a second i was like is that cousin greg and uh it couldn't have been because cousin greg would have been
1: a teenager i this don't is know from who succession greg is. Alrighty, haven't watched it People keep telling me I should. It's good. Uh, you know, I don't it's usually current. watch that kind of show. <laughs> current. Yeah, current is not current the kind of show I usually <laughs> <laughs> Nope. No, right now I'm working my way through Fringe, uh, 2009's Fringe Seven, and um, the French detective show Cherif, which started in 2013. So that's where I'm at. Well, cool. Anyway, cool.
2: Yep. Um, Well, thanks for sharing that with all of us, Anna. You bet. Um, So, it turns out that Avatar was perhaps a more fitting follow-up to our Apocalypto episode than I'd originally intended. As it has kind of answered the question I posed last week of, if you really want to tell a complicated and nuanced story about white society, why not make up a new one? Uh, James Cameron did that, and... I'm really tired after watching it. Um, It turns out uh, that's bad, too. So listeners should know that (laughs) I have had a very long and expensive week where my computer didn't work for most of it because it turns out I needed to restart it. And then uh, (laughs) the only after buying things to try to fix my computer that just needed to be restarted. And then I had a power outage. And then I finally was like, oh my God, I have to get this episode done. And then I realized that the movie was two hours and 42 minutes long. That is
1: unconscionably long. It's so long. It's really long. And so
2: I'm really tired after watching it, specifically after watching it. So I'm not going to do, like last week, when I did a blow by blow, not the best. Mm. Uh, no, nope. mm. uh, no, I'm not going to do that, but uh, because we're dealing with a fictional society, so I don't need to really fact check it. Um, but <laughs> I think it's still helpful for listeners and co-hosts to know what actually happens in the movie. So I said, as I said, it's two hours and 42 minutes long. So this description is going to be a little long just because there was plot in there. Um, and I want you all to know that I watched it as God and James Cameron intended on my phone in bed.
1: <laughs> you know, Which, I mentioned to my mom that this was the one that we were covering and she was like, ah, oh, I remember that one. It gave me the most awful headache.
2: It, it triggered my vertigo, like from, Oh, I bet. Like my acrophobia from a phone in my bed. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of like what make, made it like really popular was like the, the, like, the, the filming style and how he like filmed people. He like changed the game for CGI and like made it sure, less cartoony yeah. or whatever. And so there was I, a lot of press around that. Yeah. I didn't I have that. those scales on my eyes because I was watching it on my phone. Um, <laughs> so I also watched it on Disney Plus. Which, okay. Um, so you renewed so. your subscription? Great. No, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> Did you use mine? No, nah, I don't know. Oh, okay. I just opened the app and it worked. So. Oh great.
0: <laughs> Maybe oh, I, I used yours.
2: No, I don't care. <laughs> so the so I watched on Disney Plus, 'cause it it belongs to them, I guess. Um, and um that description there is quote a man embarks on an adventure to an exotic world that he learns to call home and fights to protect, end quote. <sighs> so <laughs> So, so as if that weren't enough, um, I'm going to tell you what happens in it. (laughs) Jake Sully is a disabled U.S. veteran who is given his dead brother's military contract, dead twin brother's military contract to travel to the moon of Pandora and drive an avatar, which is a lab grown body created from a hybridization of human DNA And the DNA of the indigenous inhabitants inhabitants of this this moon, uh, the Na'vi, who are blue humanoids and whose bones are reinforced with naturally occurring carbon fibers. So they're real strong. Um, So in a safety briefing from a serious military guy, uh, Jake and we learn that the Na'vi are very hard to kill and commonly use arrows dipped in a powerful neurotoxin. I do not know why the U.S.
1: military is going to Pandora. (laughs) Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, when you say he's 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 physically going to the place to drive an avatar, so it's yeah. his consciousness. Yeah, it's but like, like, a, like where's a, the rest of him? The the rest of him is in a tank
2: asleep. So okay, he goes okay. to he like basically like goes to sleep and then wakes up in the avatar. But the avatar okay. is a physical body too. Um, okay that's so the part that i didn't so yeah and, understand. and they both exist in the same timeline uh all right so okay uh we meet dr grace who's a real stuffy rude nerd and head of the avatar hmm. program and who wants to do science and is inconvenienced by jake sully not being his dead brother who had a phd and so i been training for this for three years so she goes to selfridge who's played by giovanni ribisi oh this is sigourney hmm. weaver dr grace uh so she Ah, goes to selfridge the corporate guy and they do some exposition um (laughs) so uh selfridge says quote you're supposed to be winning the hearts and minds of the natives isn't that the whole point of your little puppet show if you look like them and you talk like them then they'll start trusting us you built them a school you teach them english and but after what how many years relations with the indigenous are only getting worse and she says, yeah, that tends to happen when you use machine guns on them. So here we have the uh, conflict between uh, the wanting scientific understanding and and wanting what? Turns out uh, that what he, what they want is the whole reason why they're there is something called unobtainium. Um, I don't. It, which is a that I, is also lazy writing. That is a like real first draft. Like, yep element named TK. Um, but it's like Schmonkey a... Schmonkey schmong it's a, it's a rare moon mineral that goes for sure. 20 million USD a kilo. Um, and that's what's paying for the whole operation. So she's funded to find... like, So her funding is being used by the military industrial complex to find a diplomatic solution for keeping war at bay, but to get the NAVI to scoot on out so the U.S. can keep mining on So it turns out they live... And their, their home tree um, is like over top of like the biggest load of unobtainium, like known to date. And they want to displace them so that they can get on and mine there. it. Yeah. And sell it. OK, so now that we have Great. the plot all sorted out after that scene. We hook Jake up to his neural connection to Avatar Jake and he wakes up and wilds out and his. Big blue new body with triumphant music celebrating his newfound non-paralysis. Uh, this mm-hmm. recurring theme of like his disability mm-hmm. uh, sucks. Um, yep. So he comes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So he he comes back like it like wakes up and um, the silly serious military guy makes him a deal for espionage in exchange for getting him his real legs back when the tour is done um so he wants like to. That. yeah yeah it's like basically like we could they he'll get his spinal surgery paid for um which
1: i know but it's also just like i, I know to, like we can I, fix you yeah, whatever yucky. like
2: it's just super ableist and it just like makes me mad and um is gross Um, So he wants, so the serious military guy wants to know what's needed in order to, quote, force their cooperation and hammer them hard if it doesn't work. So uh, Jake agrees. And we've got some stakes, stakes for the movie. Uh, So Jake Avatar meets Neytiri, who's the daughter of the indigenous leader and interpreter of the sick. So her dad is the leader and her mom is the interpreter of the sacred trees will. Um, so Neytiri so, like, saves spiritual leader, yeah, spiritual leader, political leader, and she's yeah, their daughter. Yeah. So she's like royalty of this otherwise like rather egalitarian society. I don't know. Um, all right, so she saves him from some forest creatures, but then chastises him for his behavior and like his whole deal. Um, but he gets taken back to the village because the tree, one of the seeds from the tree, like lands on him and she's like oh dang you were chosen and i was like oh, can't kill you and so it takes him back to the village where we learn that the navi call the avatars dreamwalkers um and they're very impressed by the fact that he's the first warrior dreamwalker they've ever met so he says that he's like a warrior of the jarhead clan okay um because he's a he's a marine He's a marine. So he he's, he is military. So he's, he's not just So he he was so he's a marine who was paralyzed in combat. He has a okay. twin brother who was a PhD in navi studies who died at like a botched mugging.
1: Okay. And I so thought that the brother then, was also military for some reason. No, I misunderstood. The brother
2: was just dead, dead nerd and so he he is picked because he's got the same genome. The, so begins our story of Jake learning about the Navi, reporting back for the purposes of extracting knowledge and resources alike, and growing increasingly conflicted about his divided loyalties. Three months go by, and it feels like every second of them is on screen. And the military guy comes back to say that he's gotten him approval to fix his legs, and he's on a shuttle that night. And it's time to move, the, move out the Navi so they can blast out some Optanium. But wait... He has, to, this feels like it came up very suddenly, but maybe it's because I was like half awake. Um, but he has to go through his ceremony of becoming a man, like a Navi man. Yeah, um, no, got- he, like he can negotiate. So he thinks that he can negotiate the terms of their relocation. He and Neytiri consummate their relationship and they're mated for life because the Navi are extremely monogamous. They have this braid and then there's like little tendrils and then the tendrils like tangle up and then you're bonded. But you all do also do that with like dragon things that you can fly. You like bond with them. Sure. It's sure. Sure. Um, The next morning Neytiri wakes up to bulldozers coming and destroy the tree. Uh, But Jake won't wake up because he's awake in his original body. So he wakes up in his Navi body because he just like going through his morning like doop to do and and then like hops in his little his little his Navi tank. Yeah, his tank, that's the word. Um, And so he he wakes up in his Na'vi body to find that the occupation has begun. So everything goes sideways. Grace and Jake go back into their avatars to warn everyone, um, which goes about as well as you could guess. And then the military comes in, destroys the home tree. So all of the, like... Earth humans involved in assisting the Navi are put in the brig, which is a word I learned on this show from Anna. Um, and then um, come in handy. they are broken out by Michelle Rodriguez um, who I think her character's name is Trudy um, who still steals like a chopper thing um, and takes them to the Tree of Souls um, along Different with the tree. tank. The Tree of Souls is like the the really important tree that has... so. Um, there's a bit of exposition vomit, like another point in the movie where it seems like there's like a the root system among all of these trees are connected and there seem to be Oh, it's like like pando. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. But it works. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a brain. And so there are like electrical signals. And so it's this idea that this is a this can be seen as a technology and the Navi have learned to access it and kind of like upload their memories and like download knowledge from it. And it's like a whole science fiction thing. So they were going there because that's their like point of refuge. Um, Jake rallies the survivors and tells them all to call the other clans and let the sky people, which is what they call the U.S. military, uh, know that they can't just come and take whatever they want, that this is their land it's Jake talking. So a climactic battle happens and it seems like the Na'vi are going to lose, but the deity Ewa, who like is the connected through the tree, um who doesn't take sides, only seeks balance of life according to uh Neteri, um inspires the natural world to rise up and the military gets variously stomped by terrestrial megafauna or knocked out of the sky by dragons. All of the human aliens are forced to leave the planet. And Jake gets transferred permanently into his avatar. Um mm. and and like we watch them all get like walked off into their ship to leave. Um, and that's the end of the movie. But since it made 2.847 billion USD at the box office, that's um, so many USD. We we as a world are obligated to see like four sequels over the coming decades.
1: Yeah. Um. um can I just tell you what Pando is, real quick? Because it's really cool. Okay. Pando. So it's the it's Latin. I spread. Uh, also known as the Trembling Giant, is a clonal colony of an individual male quaking aspen. And it's it's possibly the largest single living organism um, and has this one massive underground root system. And so it's in South Central Utah. And it's basically this forest of aspen trees, except every single tree is a clone and they're all connected by a root system. It's very oh, that cool.
2: Is, that is very cool, but that's in no way what's happening. I know okay, that. Just want to clarify. So that's what happens in the movie let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll move from what happens in the movie to what happens in the movie
0: (laughs) it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Kulturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com.
2: Okay, we're back. We're back. And before we get into analysis of the film, I want to pause on something that sent me to Google on my computer because my phone was busy watching the movie.
1: Um, As James Cameron and God intended, yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: it's so long um uh, and that was the navi language uh, which unfortunately is subtitled on screen in papyrus <laughs> no. um in a like a, tr- a truly unpalatable
1: shade of yellow
2: and it just looks like it i mean looks i like, know it, it yellow like... is
1: supposed to be easier on the eyes no but, but
2: it's like a, a hideous yellow <sighs> and it's it, it's like funny. Um, it's funny to watch this, <laughs> this movie of like digitally filmed, like cartoon human people, like just mm-hmm. like the probably, probably if like, also I didn't watch the movie on the TV here because like, this is a, it's a really good TV and everything looks like a soap opera. Oh no. It, <laughs> and so yeah. I was like, okay. I can't, I can't watch that. Like I, I, I can't do it. Um, but it like looks kind of crappy cause it's on a phone and then you've got this like Like seventh grader PowerPoint presentation text Uh over it. And it just was really tough. It was super tough. Uh, Um, So I have a passing interest. I have a passing interest in constructed languages. It it doesn't do much for me in day-to-day. But I wanted to see if the creators of the Navi language were going for a certain sound and perhaps the ramifications thereof. Like I'm thinking of Game of Thrones where the language that Jason Momoa's character speaks. The
1: Dothraki. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, where it's like supposed to sound like Arabic. And between that and everybody being swarthy and nomadic, I was like, Mm. I gotta go. I Mm. gotta go from like (laughs) It is on the nose, the nose being. Well, we'll get to it towards the end of the episode on what that nose is. Um, But I wanted to learn a little bit more. And so I said, Anna, I'm running out of time. Because of the not having a computer all week and the power outage and the fact that this movie is so it's long, a, I mean,
1: I'm happy to help. Yeah, I was like, help. And I'm especially happy to help because I didn't have to watch Avatar. Yeah. Uh, also, I went down a little bit of a side road, but I think I hope uh, it will it, it will be an informative one. So, ah, James, the side Cameron, roads often are. It's true, and all, almost all. Like the really good surprise restaurants that I found in the same way are just like these little holes in the wall. Same
2: yeah. idea. Let's find some holes
1: in yeah. the wall. Mm hmm. Okay. Well, James Cameron reached out to linguist Paul Fromer, uh, who is at the University of Southern California. You know, he's at and the business Paul-
2: school at USC. I didn't. Yeah. He's a professor at the business school who just has a PhD in linguistics. I'm I didn't. A gay man.
1: Ah, IDK either. So he, Paul Frommer, spent years building the Navi language. And so uh, I found a few sources. So if you are already studying linguistics and you are able to kind of read linguistic notation, (laughs) this is for you. Uh, There's a, a UPenn language log post which is a guest post by Fromer and it details all the intricacies of pronunciation and syntax. And there's so much information, most of which was over my head, but, but it'll be in the show notes. So if that interests you, yeah, have it's under it
2: under your head, go for it.
1: Yeah. No, I was miles above mine, but, We will also include a link to a video on YouTube from the Disney blog channel, and Frommer is interviewed and breaks down (laughs) how he created the language, um, and and teaches the viewers a few phrases. And I went looking for this because I wanted to hear how the language sounded, and A, didn't want to watch the movie, and B, I don't know enough about linguistic notation or diacritics or phonetics to figure it out from the written information. It's like, yeah, like, someone talk it to me, please. So... (laughs) There's that.
2: And I'm sure that um, Sam Worthington also spoke Navi with an Australian accent because like, <laughs> that movie was so long. That guy could not keep it together. Like no. it was real. It was really tough. And also he narrates it because he does like, these video logs. And I'm like, oh, Sam Worthington. Like, mm. We just got to let
1: you act in your natural environment. <laughs> so from the Wikipedia entry on Navi language, which is it shouldn't surprise me, but it's very extensive. <laughs> Based on Cameron's, so this is I'm quoting quote. Based on Cameron's initial list of words, which had so, sorry, let me back up. When James Cameron mm. first approached Paul Frommer, he had a couple dozen words for things, and he was like, "This is what I came up with. Build a language <laughs> around this."
2: Good Lord. Like he
1: had specific things that he wanted words for, and then he was like, "Ah, I guess we need a language." So, based on Cameron's initial list of words, which had a Polynesian flavor according to Fromer. Oh. Yeah.
2: So Cameron um, had these words. He's like it sounds like it's the this. this word means this. Yeah, this, this is what word I want. Means this means this. Yes. Yes.
1: Okay. Great. Uh-huh. Um and so Fromer developed three different sets of meaningless words and phrases that conveyed a sense of what an alien language might sound like, one using contrasting tones, so a tonal language, one using varying uh-huh. vowel lengths, Mm-hmm. And one using ejective consonants mm-hmm. of the three, Cameron. So, like in this meeting, <laughs> Cameron liked the sound of the ejectives most, and so his choice established the phonology or the sound of the language that Frommer would use in developing the rest of the Navi language, morphology, syntax, initial vocabulary. It took him more than six months to so to put twice everything as together
2: long for him to build this language, as it
1: did for. Jake Sully to master it. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. So, quick sidebar. Oh. I hear you asking, Amber and listeners, what are ejective consonants? And so that is, for example, like the K sound at the end of the word brick. A consonant that is emphasized by aspiration, so breath, after a glottal stop. A release of air from the throat after it closes to make the beginning of the sound. So in English, there's also a an ejective T and a P, so T and P at the end of words, although not everyone pronounces these the same way. I sort of <laughs> spent some time staring into the middle distance like thinking about how I pronounce words that have these components. So like, I can't. Tend to e- can't.
2: Can't. Did I do it?
1: Did I eject? You Yes, you did. You hit the ejector button. So I tend to elide words that end with a T or pronounce them with a glottal stop without really saying that sound with the tip of my tongue so if i were to say the phrase the first part right i didn't say the first part i said the first part like i elided mm-hmm. that that t but some people do print like depending on you know how you grew up how how you learned english You may or may not pronounce those those syllables that way. So listeners, it doesn't have to be now, but take a second sometime to think of some phrases and say them aloud and see how you instinctively pronounce some of these syllables. It's unfortunately, at least for me, it's really hard to do once you start thinking about it. But it it is interesting to kind of actively notice in your own speech and others.
2: Yeah, I love getting too into
1: my own head. Yeah, this will be fun. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so back to the movie, Um moving, moving away from language and into some takes response to Avatar to me, someone who didn't watch it and who just sort of spent some time looking into critiques and articles about it seems to be divided into, into two camps. The one people who are sort of trying to make an interpretation and people who are just like, wow, about the graphics. So, you yeah. Joshua Keating, writing for ForeignPolicy.com, called Avatar an all-purpose allegory and a political Rorschach test. Also, while writing this, I determined that the real Rorschach test is spelling it right the first time. I don't ever know where to put the Cs. There's two of them. So
2: you're saying that, like, where to put the Cs says more about you than it does about the test?
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I just want to put a pin on this because this will become very important. Um, Great, <laughs> where like there it being a political rorschach test in that there is no answer, and you will see yeah. what you see in it.
1: Yeah, uh, despite what James Cameron has to say about it, which is also that there's nothing. There is an answer, or there is no answer. He says both things. Hang on, buddy. I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> so, things James Cameron has said about his movie <laughs> uh, from foreignpolicy.com. dot com. He says he's quoted in in an interview saying, quote, I've heard people say this film is un-American while part of being an American is having the freedom to have dissenting ideas. Put this in the camp of like
2: political Rorschach test. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So he goes on to say in that same interview, this movie reflects that we are living through war. There are boots on the ground, troops who I personally believe were sent there under false pretenses. So I hope this will be part of opening our eyes. End quote. Cool. Yeah. So for context, this was. It
2: came out in 2009. So it was both. 2009. Okay. So yeah, this yeah. was Iraq both. War this and... was the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan. And this was yeah. um, the beginning of uh, Barack Obama's first term.
1: Yes. Okay. In which uh, we were allegedly going to not have wars. Well, from Wikipedia, and unfortunately, so this, this alludes to a quote from an interview and then the link to the interview itself, the page didn't work. So, <laughs> but on the Charlie Rose talk show, great Cameron, yeah, I know. Cameron acknowledged parallels with the idea of the noble savage, um, which is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's kind of philosophical take on indigenous folks. Very current, very up-to-date. Uh, but he argued, quote, when indigenous populations who are at a bow and arrow level are met with technologically superior forces, if someone doesn't help them, they lose. So we are not talking about a racial group within an existing population fighting for their rights. Cameron rejected claims. Oh, sorry, that's end Cameron's quote. And then Cameron rejected claims that the film is racist, asserting that Avatar is about respecting others' differences from sfgate.com. This is kind of excerpted. So did James Cameron actually make a $300 million plus movie about imperialism and biodiversity? Probably, says Cameron, with a hearty laugh in a Century City Hotel suite. Avatar is about a lot of things. It's primarily an action-adventure journey, a journey of self-discovery, much more universally themed. But it also does have a conscience. I think it's okay for a film to have a conscience, not to just be a ride. I guess it was Sam Goldwyn who said, if you want a mess, I almost said massage. If you want a message, call Western Union. But I don't think that's enough. A movie has to work on multiple levels, end quote. So when it comes to actual movie reviews, I went to old standby Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes, and we've got a. A tie, 82% critic score and 82% audience score. So I, I picked some reviews, uh, some critic reviews. Autostraddle says, 500 million dollars, brackets, wasted. Uh, the SF Chronicle critic says, re-watching it with fresh eyes 10 years later, the movie's pluses and minuses both rise into much starker relief. The verdict? It's fine. The IndependentCritic.com says, Avatar is very nearly devoid of that spark of humanity that would allow the film to soar. The critic from Radio Times, I don't know why Radio Times is doing a movie thing, but sure. Functioning as both an a action-packed... a podcast doing a movie thing, so... Excellent like, point. Functioning as both an action-packed war movie and an allegory for our own beleaguered planet, Avatar smashes big set pieces together with big emotion to rousing effect. And then finally from The Movie Maven. Absolutely astounding fantasy extravaganza. I was entirely immersed and immensely amazed. Avatar is pure cinematic magic so the people who loved it seemed to have mostly loved it because of world building and the cgi effects without necessarily thinking critically about what the story was and it's the more critical reviews that that really take the plot into account which i guess isn't surprising so there we are there's my bit
2: yeah um so now that we've heard what Film critics have to say, and even the artist himself has to say, because this movie was uh, written, directed and produced by James Cameron. But let us turn to the realms of academic criticism. So there are many lenses through which to approach this text um, and many lessons to draw from it. But I want to focus on two and then linger on the second and explore it as a concept a little bit more fully. Um, And so the reason why I think you can have so many... Uh, because, well, a, a, a text of any kind, whether it be a film or a novel or an essay, like a theory, any of these things, they can they can have multiple things going on and you could have multiple things being true about them. You can also have absolutely nothing be true about them and it just be just like a smooth, shiny surface into which you can see whatever you want, um, which Is where we kind of get back to that Rorschach test thing where it's like it's 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 kind of vacuous and you could just get what you want out of it. That's my take. The first take that I want to discuss is one that I tried to inhabit while watching it to make myself like get a bit more into it. Um, And that's thinking about Avatar as Marxist allegory. So one example of this take is um, an essay called Avatar, an article. Uh, titled Avatar, A Marxist Saga on the Far Distant Planet uh, by Yang Tang, who argues that all of James Cameron's movies, except for True Lies, um, are expressions of a Marxist ideological worldview, which presents the true conflict as being between the interests of the working class and those of the capitalist class who are seeking to exploit them. So Yang admits that this is Um, only an undercurrent of Cameron's movies, not a current. So it's like not the point of them, but it's there. It's there for you to kind of catch it if you're primed for it, I guess. I don't know. But it is one that affected audiences globally. Uh, So the article identifies three examples of Avatar entering the kind of political present of late 2009, early 2010. Anna, would you like to read this quote? This is a quote
1: from... This is just taken Mm -hmm. from Yong's article. Okay. Quote, In January 2010, Avatar was pulled from every 2D movie screen in the People's Republic of China, despite its unprecedented popularity in the country. Speculation was that the Chinese government's decision to ban Avatar was based on the film's political sensitivity. Many Chinese moviegoers drew a parallel between the sufferings of the indigenous people in Avatar and their own. Much like what the invaders from Earth did to the residents of the fictitious Pandora, some Chinese local government officials and greedy real estate developers violently evict farmers and city dwellers from their homes, demolish their buildings, and redevelop their land. Officials and businessmen do so purely to satisfy their appetite for huge profit. In February 2010, in the West Bank of the Jordan River, some Palestinian activists dressed up like the oppressed aliens from Avatar to protest against the Israeli occupation. The demonstration was inspired by Liana Badr, a Palestinian author and documentary filmmaker in Europe. Bader was so moved by the film's similarity to the Palestinian experience in the West Bank that she recommended the science fiction movie to her Palestinian friend, a leading organizer of this protest. In April 2010, indigenous leaders in the Amazon rainforest wrote letters to the Avatar director, James Cameron, asking him to help in their battle to stop the building of a dam proposed by the Brazilian government. Once the construction is complete, the dam would become one of the largest hydroelectric projects in the world. Tribal leaders believe that a project of this magnitude would displace Indigenous people, devastate a large amount of rainforest, and damage their Indigenous culture, just like what the greedy humans did to the Na'vi in Avatar.
2: So this really, really bummed me out. I did not look into what came of the, the letter writing campaign to James Cameron because I was just too scared to see what would come
1: of it. I don't blame you. Um, yeah, But like this
2: bummed me out. Uh, so these are three examples of people living real visible struggles in the actual world um, that are like, who are turning to this facile action movie about big blue guys as like an effective touch point for protest. And I'm not Saying that I'm not saying anything against the people who took this as like a a point of like connection or representation or resonance, or even using it as like something to kind of get the attention of other people. Be like, oh, you thought this was bad? Wait till hey, you check out this thing in real life. In real life. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, it but and it kind of also makes me it makes me think of like the handmade protests, which themselves are pretty reprehensible. Uh, but they do have an effect on people and so like folks what i'm talking about handmade protests so this is in reference to the handmaid's tale which is the margaret atwood book which just like it's a well-written book and everything but like it's like white feminist trauma porn um that takes the actual experiences of indigenous people and um sort of like enslaved Africans and like the African diaspora, like taking their experience and being like, well, what if it happened to white women? Like that's kind of what, what, and so it's been, it's become in recent years, Something that, especially with the TV show, um, something where you have protesters showing up to anti-choice rallies and things like that dressed as handmaids. And it's supposed to be like a powerful
1: demonstration, but it is also... Well-intentioned, but perhaps not understanding the full context. Yeah,
2: well-intentioned, but
1: reprehensible. Um, And it's just something where it
2: really upsets me on a visceral level to see people having an easier time being moved by something completely fictional with like white protagonists than it is for them to like see the analogous situation in see, see living groups of people yeah see what the analogy is being drawn from
0: and Mm -hmm. like you can't
2: get there like i don't know like yeah it turns out this was a really good um Follow
1: up to Apocalypse. Yeah,
2: yeah. So the Marxist interpretation. Cameron's work is class struggle. Struggle. Sure. Yeah. I, I guess. Sure. Maybe I'm cynical. What? But it seems to me to be more likely that Cameron is just really good at making blockbusters um and people like a relatable character and most people are much closer to the working man character in terms of their own material conditions than the evil capitalist character (laughs)
0: statistically
2: not everyone is usher and and also we're just like slammed with like signs of who's likable and who's unlikable from the jump and there are a lot of there there are a lot of parallels uncanny parallels uh between Mm -hmm. this movie and aliens um Mm -hmm. Which is one of my favorite movies. That's the second one? It's the second one. It's the sequel to Alien, which is in fact actually about working class people. Uh, so Alien is a Ridley Scott movie, and Aliens is a James Cameron movie. Um, oh. And so he sort of inherited this, like, th- this thing. So as we enter the last period of this episode, my entire review of Avatar is thus. What if we took the plot of Aliens, made it on computer, and instead of Paul Reiser or Bill Paxton, R.I.P., they just gave us Orientalism instead? So hit the clocks on, Anna, because I've said the word of the day. Buckle up, (coughs) nerds, because it is the 200th episode and y'all are going to learn about the critical theory that rocked my entire world. And I am very disappointed that I have spent 46 minutes of this episode not talking about it yet. So we are going to talk about Orientalism and I've dropped here in the script, my favorite meme, which is a, <laughs> you've a, sent
1: it to me before,
2: which I, yeah, I've sent it to most people who have sent me something where it is warranted, where it's two frames. The first one being like a very like uh wiki how illustration of somebody <laughs> dialing a number on their phone. And I think it's supposed to be nine one one. But it says Edward Said, and then the second panel is the person holding the phone up to their ear. And so to help you understand this meme, enough jokes. Orientalism, in its sense as a critical framework, not like a type of painting, um, is the title of a book published by Palestinian literary critic and uh, uh, thinker, um, Edward Said, in 1979. Um, It was blunt and scathing and transformational. Since 1979, Orientalism has become a foundational text in moving students and researchers away from Eurocentric um, or other centric colonial approaches to knowledge and its management and towards something post-colonial, decolonial or perhaps even indigenizing. Um, so I read Orientalism for the first time in my second year of my Ph.D. program which some might already know as my last year of my PhD program in near Eastern studies. There's a connection Said's work uh, ideas and legacy have had a profound impact on me and gave me vocabulary for things I had seen or felt. And it gave me a mirror against which I could examine myself and identify the ways in which I had, I benefit and participate in ongoing harm. Um, so Orientalism is book. Means a lot to me. Um, and that work has been like it, it certainly isn't the end all be all. Like it was, it is, it wasn't even the first, but it was the first time that somebody really like threw it on the table and was like, look at it and then <laughs> sort of started conversations and that um, continue. So at its heart, Orientalism is, in Saeed's words, quote, Ultimately, a political vision of reality whose structure promoted the difference between the familiar, so Europe, West, us, and the strange, the Orient, the East, them, end quote. Uh, constructing the Orient wasn't about describing infinitely diverse and complex people who occupied a geographical zone that happened to be east of the observer. It was about formulating a foil to what the observer wanted to be. Um, so Saeed so calls this negatively constructed identities, and it's something that I have that I I've brought up on the show before, and it's something that has been helpful just in kind of my interpersonal like relationships. Um, so rather than creating your idea identity as what you are, you create an identity of what you are not, so or what you want to believe you are not, and project it onto the other. So that process of otherizing is called alterity. <laughs> And it's meant to make the author, artist, or just the subject look good, like in their own eyes, in the eyes of others, or um, in in those they wish to curry favor from. When the Orient is described as tribal, despotic, devious, mystical, and violent, what we are saying is the Occident, so the West, is civilized, democratic, honest, rational, and peace-loving. The two can't be reconciled because they're just fundamentally different. That's how you may hear people who talk, who have fallen into the trap of clash of civilizations or thinking about like the people who frame the middle East conflict as they call it as something like intractable and timeless when in fact it isn't. Uh, So Politically, Orientalism serves the aims of colonialism by serving as the, quoting Said, Western style for dominating, restructuring and having authority over the Orient, uh, end quote. And it does this through, in Said's words, describing it by teaching it, settling it, ruling over it. Over time, the myth of the so-called Oriental developed into stereotypes and ultimately fully embedded itself into Western and political Western political and cultural consciousness as a systematic knowledge. Like almost like um, what one might consider physics or chemistry, just like foundational natural law. Like this is just how it is. Um, as a result, those engaging in Orientalism often found exactly what they were looking for, since it all existed inside their own heads. Um, Said doesn't say that, like, all white people are bad and it's some character flaw in us that led to this pattern of thinking. It's that knowledge can only be produced in an unequal power dynamic. Um, And the one in the dominant position is the one that gets to say what is and what isn't and gets to be the one writing books about it. So we, the Orientalists can't ever truly meet or describe the inhabitant of another place because the framework that we use to process the data that that we would be taking in from from you know that interlocutor um is is processed um by our own subjective brain which warps it
1: into something monstrous does that make sense yeah it makes total sense okay it's, it's predicated on, you know, the, the monstrosity part is is predicated on seeing those negative traits in whatever the other happens to be.
2: Yeah. And and it's something that helps to justify actions um, oh, yeah. and brutality. And it also, um, it's something where it might seem easy to say, well, it says more about us than it does about them. But that would erase the like very real... consequences and ramifications of like the impacts that it has in uh lived experiences yeah yeah. um
1: so it's oversimplified
2: yeah definitely um so we're going to take one more quick break and when we come back i guess i'll talk about avatar some more and (laughs) and and point out the orientalism of avatar And we're bringing it on home. I can hear you saying, well, I'm glad you're in a better mood now, Amber. Good to get to talk about Orientalism. But what
1: does this have <laughs> to do with Avatar? Finally, on episode 200, we got there.
2: <laughs> yeah. And um, it'll come back.
1: Um, yeah.
2: It'll come. Like, yeah. It hasn't. Um,
1: it hasn't. It, it's been here the it's whole been, time. Yeah. Is
2: the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I think that it's something that's easier. I think Orientalism is something that's easier to approach in a context and be like there it Mm -hmm. is than it is to be like here's the book orientalism
1: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) which also was was
2: was very helpful for me but I had the context of an entire discipline that I was in and being like oh 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 no so perhaps you saw Avatar when it came out 13 years ago and remember it as being pretty clearly anti-colonialist and about the American military being the bad guys and Jake Solly choosing to join the Na'vi who are morally superior the other good humans were the scientists who wanted to understand them and not displace them for capitalist gains. Right? Right? Well, you've
1: asked the question, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah, and like also the, the people who like the other good humans that like helped him out were mm-hmm. um,
1: the nerd, who was also in Bones. The nerd is almost always a sympathetic character. Yeah,
2: There was Sigourney Weaver. Uh, there was Michelle
1: Rodriguez
2: who... I maintain was cast in this movie as a like Latina military person to make up for the fact that in Aliens, the Latina military person was a woman in brown face. Oh, no. I think that's why Michelle Rodriguez is in it. Um, You're probably
1: not wrong, but yikes a And
2: then there was another science man who I saw described in an article as Arab. So you've got minorities. <laughs> if, if like nerd is a minority, I don't know. <laughs> but, I, let's not but, go there. But that's something that's been that's been argued as that it's sort of this this sort of more diverse. Yeah, um, sure. This this more diverse set of people that are sympathetic to the Navi cause. Sure. Um, well, there are many people who would disagree with that. A scholar whose name I believe is uh Betul Sina Uzer, uh, who very neatly packages up these arguments in watching Avatar through a post-colonial and orientalist lens. The Navi to are to our eyes, as the people who are following Jake Sully through the film, we have a, a white misfit protagonist. Um they are very exotic beings who are primitive, emotional, spiritual, and weirdly sexy with their big cat eyes, tiny waist, long muscular limbs, and like no clothes. Other people think they're sexy, is what I'm saying. They are sexualized, is what I should say. Um They've even got an apostrophe in their middle in the middle of their name, which is like
1: classic other. A trope since <laughs> every fantasy slash science fiction novel ever. Yeah. <sighs> Um,
2: yeah, and so apart from the few characters that get lines, by the by, um, all of the navi are played by non white actors that like actual people of color, not blue people um well, yeah, like, <laughs> which like is not the case for the Americans, so like the military is like pretty much all white people,
0: and then uh-huh. you've got the
2: navi who are it's everybody it's hard else to, it's hard to be like, oh. Look at this like great representation, and this not, and then it's it like Star Wars does this too, where it's like, oh yeah, we've got like this like strong black character, and I'm like, she's a robot, like that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's,
1: it's it's it's
2: like a swing like, and a miss. It's hard to um, say like
1: representation matters when they're <laughs> in like three inches of makeup, and- yeah,
2: and this person is like fully in a computer, um, but they're yeah. they're portrayed as sort of like a blurry homogenous collective without individual agency. Um, They're just sort of like the Na'vi. Dominic Alessio and Kristen Meredith also wrote an article about decolonizing Avatar. Um, They describe the styling of the Na'vi as having, quote, Maasai-looking necklaces, Rastafarian dreadlocked hair, North American indigenous people's clothing and weapons, and Maori cultural practices, end quote. Um, And, like, the end result is just sort of a jumble of traits that read as indigenous to make us go, ah, yes, indigenous. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, but it's not, like it's not just the presentation of the Navi that, that smacks of Orientalism. It's the whole premise of the good guys and why they're there in the first place. And this is the thing that really got me about the whole movie. Um, so here I pulled, this, see this like weird font. This is because I found this in my notes from 2013 <laughs> of some, or 2012 wow. that was something I was working on. Uh, cause it really stuck with me <laughs> it has <laughs> stuck with me. So this is like baby, baby Amber. Um, Pulling from page 36 of Edward Said's 1979 book, Orientalism, where he says, no, I'm going to read read Edward Said. Just trying to help. Uh, Once again, knowledge of subject areas or orientals is what makes their management easy and profitable. Knowledge gives power. More power requires more knowledge and so on in an increasingly profitable dialectic of information and control.
1: Or well, that's in that in that uh, exposition dump dialogue that you you read up top between Sigourney Weaver and Juconi Garber. <laughs> yep, we've arrived. We've started teaching them English. You know, just sort of we've we're starting to learn about them. And once we learn enough about them, in come the machine guns.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, and so I just find it very. Thanks, universe, that I found because I I was trying to find I did a workshop about Orientalism a few years ago, and I was trying to find the notes from that. Um, So I just typed in my Google Drive Orientalism. and So much stuff came up in my drive. Four (laughs) thousand results. (laughs) Um, But I found this and this was like some of my earliest notes, like from like from class. And just that this quote is so relevant to this. And it also is clearly something that I just filed away in my brain and have kept there for over a decade. This dialectic of of information and control is exactly why Jake goes to Pandora. He's supposed to be finding out about them, either for the noble but rude Dr. Grace who just wants to study <laughs> them because she respects them and their planet and wants to she keeps to, like it, like some of her dying words are like oh, I need to spoiler. get samples, whatever. Like I like I need to get samples and it's just like you can't like you can't stop a nerd extracting to
1: the end. Like
2: you just like have to extract. <laughs> like that's um, or the military who wants to get the Navi out of the way as expeditiously as possible. In the process, Jake becomes a white savior or like a blue savior that's yeah. the case may be, and not only <laughs> learns about the navi but within three months gains mastery over their language their cosmology marries the daughter of the political and spiritual leader of the community and is the sixth person to ever convince a big scary dragon to let him ride it that's what makes him the token makto or something like he's the thing he's the person who can ride the the big dragon um what's the thing in dune that's another thing that you gotta <laughs> call edward Said about so he's yeah. he's become in three months he becomes like the uber of the navi he's the uber navi so he was a disenchanted misfit from a lower social class on earth It was further disenfranchised by his um his his disability and as he says in the beginning like his va benefits like won't get won't provide him with the care that he needs But on Pandora, he's, like, transcended the status of royalty, like, instantly. Um, He's a messiah figure who's able to rally all the other Na'vi clans to defeat the force that brought him there in the first place. And, like, during the sort of, like, the climax that lasted, like, half an hour, I was just like, this is his fault. Like, this is, like, (laughs) I don't really know. (laughs) What do you mean? It's a hero's journey. And, and, like, what's more, Dr. Grace and her cadre of NAVI studies PhDs are operating in direct service of this, like, military-industrial project, like some kind of interplanetary-born grantees. So they receive funding from their work from the entity perpetuating intentional violence against the populations they're trying to understand. This is, like, that question that I, like, when we talked to Sam Redman, like, where... I I, clearly, I've been thinking about this for over a decade of just like Edward Said, like echoing in the back of my brain, being like, dialectic of knowledge and control, (laughs) just like that. This is like salvage. They, I mean, they were doing salvage anthropology of the Na'vi, like because they're gonna get blasted, so they could they could be mined. And so, um, yeah, this movie sucks, and it it left me thinking about the relationship between science, and uh, capitalism and like colonial exploitation, and it made me think of the work of and scientific
1: people. exploitation too. Like to continue from Apocalypto last week with She Who Shall Not Be Named and all of that nonsense.
2: Yeah, um, but it makes me think of like this makes me think of the work of people like Hyrum Funes, who um, I'll have his Twitter linked, and so he he kind of works at the intersection of like pedagogy and the possibility of decolonial postcolonial thought and science um it's really cool work and i'd much rather read that than watch any more avatar um, so we've gone a little bit long here today, but I've lost all sense of time after spending half my weekend a power outage and another half watching Avatar. <laughs> um, but I've included in the show notes another couple YouTube videos that help explain Orientalism as a theory and how it shows up today in news and media representations. And that's something that I wanted to do more here because that when I was thinking about the last time that I like, told people about Orientalism, it was in this workshop. And I don't know if it was the people I was teaching or if it was me that was, like, <laughs> that was responsible for the kind of this disconnect of like trying to identify, like, how do you see it echoed here? And they're like, I don't know,
1: maybe this isn't racist. I'm just like, cool. Um, well, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad we spent four years creating a forum for you to finally be able <laughs> so to like, I
2: don't know that I've, I like, I, and I want to, I want to do that. Like, some don't more think it here. Was you. I I want to believe it wasn't me, but um I don't know. Maybe people don't yeah. know that Sex in the City 2 is
1: Orientalist. Haven't seen it. That was one of my examples.
2: They go Alrighty. to Abu Dhabi.
1: Oh right, they're on camels. I do remember seeing a trailer. Yeah. But well, thank you for putting all this together and taking one for the team. Sure did. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in your ears next week with more content. And until then, if you miss us, you can go to thedirtpod.com to find all of our back episodes, all of our merch, all of our materials for educators and our newly created Pass the Mic grant for undergrads and graduate students to present research at conferences. Yeah, Yeah, go check it out.
2: You got a month left to apply for the first cycle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So go check it out at thedirtpod.com slash pass the mic. That's all one word. And mic is spelled M-I-C. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. We're on Twitter at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that smushes together. If you don't want to go on the individual sites, you can just go to the website at thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We yeah, love thanks. you.
0: Thanks. Bye. I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. Bye.
1: Don't apologize. This is good stuff. Orientalism. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.